I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we are going to talk about K.H. Ting, a really amazing Chinese theologian uh, and a guy who's had a lot of cool things to say about how Christians and communists ought to chat with each other. Uh, but before we do that, Matt, I understand you've been deep in the R Christianity mines. Yep, been in those mines looking for the treasure, and I think I found them. So um, <laughs> if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, uh, cool, welcome to it. Uh, every <laughs> <laughs> Lately, every week, Dean and I have been uh, trolling the uh, R Christianity subreddit um, on reddit.com. Uh, just for like the really good and honest questions that need to be answered from the uh, good Christian people of the internet. So uh, this week I've got two questions, Dean, that I need you to answer. And it's really important mm-hmm. that you um, give the good and biblical answer to these um, questions. So just do your best I always with, do. The, with the Bible. Um, last week we kind of talked a little bit about how um, in your Christian fanfic, you don't want to pander toward carnality because that might lead right. you to sin. Um, and I'm a little bit worried to read this question because I think it does pander toward carnality just a little bit, but like, I think we need to know the answer either way. So I'm going to just kind of ask it. So Dean, um, this user asks, uh, a year ago, by the way, (laughs) is Kama Sutra not right for the Christian marriage? (laughs) Hang on. (laughs) During Holy Week, no less. (laughs) So uh, it goes on, uh, if a woman does not like the extreme fun plays of her husband, what should that man do? <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Yeah, the it's, extreme fun uh, plays is troubling. Yeah, the cool thing about the sentence is it's written like a real normal person would actually talk, so that's good. <laughs> uh, this is the kind of question that you definitely bring up in your small group Bible study. You gotta uh, go to, to all of your accountability partners. You got to go to Promise Keepers and be like, uh, fellow men. What should I do? My Christian, my Christian wife does not like the Kama Sutra. <laughs> can we? Can I keep these promises? Can I make her make these promises? Um, oh boy. Yeah. So the answers to this question um, are bad. So I'm not going to read them. Uh, but just throwing that one out there. So um, I don't know. I don't know, Dean. That's my. That's where I'm going to come down. This one. I don't know if the Kama Sutra is right for the Christian marriage. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm going to say it's probably right for some Christian marriages. Uh, and, and maybe not the Christian marriage with a definite article. <laughs> okay, fair enough. The uh, ideal platonic form of Christian marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's about, I think, as close as we can get without pandering too much towards carnality. Um, yeah. Okay, so here's one more big question that I think we can definitely t- um, answer because it's about economics. So I think that we're suited for this one. Um, so the post is called, um, this is from 15 hours ago, by the way, this one's hot off the presses. Wow. Um, yeah, the post is called, we know WWJD, but how about HMWJT? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so, uh, this is the HMWJD. HMWJT. Yeah, I'm going to get this on a bracelet. So my question is, asks this person, how much would Jesus tip if he went to a restaurant? (laughs) (laughs) um there's a pretty long kind of rambling uh explanation of why this person thinks tipping is a is a big deal uh but then he uh gets to the bottom uh i assume it's a he that's probably unfair of me but you know probably um uh this user writes i know where jesus stands on charity but what about tipping tips are supposed to be (laughs) rewards for jobs done better than required they aren't charity so, Dean, what do you think about this one? Um, well, we know <laughs> we know what Jesus would do, but how much would Jesus tip? I mean, every time Jesus sat down in the actual Olive Garden, the original Olive Garden, uh, I believe it's recorded that he did tip uh, at least 20% every single time. That's a biblical fact. Okay. Yeah. Um, you gotta, if, if you're going to start cursing people's fig trees, you better tip them pretty well. <laughs> I'm just imagining, I mean, it is Holy Week, and today that we're recording it is Maundy Thursday, and uh, that's the Last Supper, and I'm sure Jesus left a really good tip after that. They don't usually they don't usually paint that part of the story, but it, I'm pretty sure that happened. Yeah, I mean, parties over to 10 have to tip more, so I would assume, right? <laughs> yeah, gratuity is already included, so it actually doesn't <laughs> help the theological debate, but... <laughs> cool. Um, well, uh, rather than tipping... Let's talk about communism. <laughs> the ultimate tipping, where everyone gets tipped. Uh, yeah, um, full tipionism. <laughs> uh, so we talk a lot about communism and Christianity on this podcast. Communism, that's how I say it now, it turns out. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a new thing, new thing I'm trying out. Um, we'd like to talk about like what Christians can learn from communism, uh, how these two kind of traditions could go together or relate and that sort of thing. Um, this week, instead of trying to figure out how to put this stuff together ourselves, we decided to get some advice from K.H. Ting, this Christian, like I said earlier, who was in China, who dedicated his life to trying to help Christians and communists cooperate to build a better world. Um, Ting helped to lead a group that was called the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. It was a state-sanctioned form, and still is a state-sanctioned form of Protestantism, uh, named for its commitment to developing three principles, hence the three-self name. So those are self-governance, so the Christian church should be governed by Chinese Christians, self-support financially, so Chinese Christians shouldn't be getting funded by foreign uh, missions and that sort of a thing, and self-propagation, that they shouldn't rely on foreign missionaries to expand Christianity, but should be able to do it indigenously themselves. Um, So before we get to some of the things that Ting thought about this relationship between Christians and communists as a result of participating in this movement, uh, there's a little more historical context that might bring us up to speed. 
So by the 1940s, when the communist movement was in full swing in China, a lot of progressive Christians greeted the revolution really enthusiastically. Not all of them, of course, uh, but more than you would think, um, actually a surprising number of them. They ended up founding what was just at that time called the Three Self Movement, not the Three Self Patriotic Movement, in 1950, and it was founded as an explicitly anti-imperialist form of Christianity that was basically premised on trying to indigenize the faith in China. So the idea was that these Christians themselves felt that Christianity in China had been too tied to foreign interests, which often came uh, right along with colonial interests. And they thought, well, if Christianity really is to be good news to the Chinese people, then it shouldn't come with capital strings attached. Uh, so they greeted the communist movement as also a way of liberating Christianity from its... Uh, uh, being tied down to those kinds of uh, Western forces. Um, in 1951, the after the success of the revolution, the Religious Affairs Bureau of China invited a bunch of Protestant leaders to Beijing to found officially the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. Um, what this meant basically was the establishment of a form of Christianity that was explicitly led by a revolutionary government, the People's Republic of China, uh, and also it meant that a revolutionary government uh, recognized the freedom of Christian expression within a certain legal framework or within certain parameters. Um, after that came the Cultural Revolution, and there's a lot to be said about that and a lot that you could read about it. We're not really going to like wade into that debate, uh, but for Christians in particular, it meant a moment of pretty heavy and violent repression. So whatever you make of the Cultural Revolution wasn't great for Christians. Uh, leaders of the Three Self-Patriotic Movement were sentenced to hard labor or killed. Uh, after all the dust settled from that, though, the organization got refounded, and that's kind of where our story picks up. So K.H. Tang became one of the most creative and influential leaders in that movement uh, after the Cultural Revolution. He had participated in it earlier, um, but this is kind of when he really like found his feet as a theologian and a person doing this kind of public theological work. Um, so this week on the show, we decided to read some of Ting's writings to think through how he tried to honor the three autonomous principles of this movement, and also how he tried to bridge this divide between Christians and communists, and also what he thought it would take to cultivate a truly Chinese anti-imperialist form of Christianity. So we want to think through maybe what that would have to teach us in the West about Christianity and colonialism, and how Christians and communists might kind of work together uh, in different projects or, or world projects. So on this podcast, we've talked a lot about like liberation movements and how Christianity has either like bolstered them or learned from them. But this is kind of like an interesting moment in like the Christian Marxist dialogue or like that discourse between Christianity and Marxism um, where like it's a post-revolutionary society kind of working out how Christianity works. Um, and it's also kind of doubly complicated because it's a place where um, – you know, Christianity wasn't wildly popular until, like, later. Um, so what's cool about K.H. Ting and learning about China and uh, communism and Christianity altogether is that you get to see some, like, really interesting ideas get worked out. Like, how would you make Christianity um, Christianity, but, like, not, um, you know, uh, not proselytizing or not, like, relying on foreign mission movements or something. So there's all these really interesting ideas floating around uh, in K.H. Ting's writings. And um, honestly, I think they're pretty cool. K.H. Ting seems like a good guy um, with a lot of smart ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's right. A good guy with a lot of smart ideas. Um, 
he did unfortunately die in 2012 um not that long ago uh but he led like a pretty extremely long life um and left behind some cool writings uh some of them are hard to get your hands on they have been like he has a couple of collections of essays in english that have been translated and there's a few books on him um we just found some like really interesting articles that he had written in the 80s which was pretty shortly after the cultural revolution um so we thought maybe that would be an interesting place to pick up just to sort of see how like Christianity both tried to rebuild um, in this communist society and what it thought, like, or at least what Ting thought it could contribute to, uh, you know, the propagation of Chinese communism and socialism. Um, so the first writing that we wanted to look at is called Retrospect and Prospect. Uh, it was written in 1980. It was given as an address um, to a, a national group of, of Christians. And Ting is basically trying to sort out what Christians could make of the recent past and of the the sort of history of Christianity in China more generally, and also how Christians could contribute to China now that it was post-revolutionary or, or in a, a socialist society. Um, so, Matt, uh, what stuck out to you about this wild piece of writing? Uh, every Everything. There's so many good quotes and, like, um, really interesting takes. So let's start here. Um, so Ting writes... The Chinese people have an anti-imperialist, anti-feudal revolutionary tradition, but Christianity entered China under the protection of Western powers during the period of Western colonial expansion into China. Our people have a hatred of the unequal treaties that were forced upon China, uh, but the foreigners' right to do missionary work depended on these very same treaties. Thus, ever since the entry of Christianity into China, it was difficult for the Chinese people to accept this religion because, although originally good, it had become an appendage to the machine of Western aggression, having a thousand and one links with colonialism and imperialism. So this sets the scene for exactly kind of like what the tension is between Christianity and uh, people in China. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, not super surprising, right? Like we've looked at a handful of revolutionary movements, and um, this is always the sort of fear that... Um, people have in those movements that uh christianity is tied to the west and uh chances are uh inviting missionaries into your country is a great way to get like a cia agent or whatever yeah exactly i mean we talked about this in so many other situations like when we've talked about the dprk when we've talked about cuba it's the same kind of thing that christianity comes with capitalism uh with western capitalism and though we might want to pull those two things apart uh the fact of the matter is historically uh they don't get pulled apart they they come alongside one another and if you want to save christianity without the capitalism uh you have to do a lot of work to actually figure out where the western capitalism ends and where christianity could begin differently or something like that and i think that's like a really admirable project yeah totally i mean that's exactly what altusser was saying just a few weeks ago, right? That like you have to disentangle these things. If you want to have Christianity um, in socialism, you have to figure out how to talk about Christianity without talking about capitalism and really seeing where those two things, um, you know, become uh, no longer synonymous with one another. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we can, we can talk about this a little bit more uh, with this quote that I pulled out. And I think what I love about this is just the language of it is really fascinating because it shows that so Ting is engaged in this extremely radical, deconstructive look at uh, Christianity. But he also has a really interesting way of 
using uh, the rhetoric of a more naive faith in Christianity to kind of make his points. And I I guess I shouldn't even say using, like, he has a a somewhat naive, like, in a healthy way, form of Christianity himself. Um, Like, he has some somewhat conservative ideas about theology, but nevertheless, this really, really radical political expression of it. Um, So we'll get into more of that later, probably. But just to maybe give a little taste of it, here's a, a passage from Ting. So he says, Such a Christianity backed by foreign power lost its source of support after liberation. As it became isolated within China, Christianity faced a difficult situation. It was then that Chinese Christians discovered that God would not quench the dimly burning wick of Chinese Christianity, but would enable it to begin to shine forth. In God's providence, two things came to our aid. The first was the policy of religious freedom of the People's Republic of China, formulated by Chairman Mao and Premier Zhu, The second was the Three Self Movement launched by the Chinese Christians ourselves. It may be said without reservation that these two are signs which show that God has not abandoned us, but has prepared us for a new opportunity and a new beginning. And what I love about this is, like, so many Christians invoke the language of God's providence or kind of signs of God, you know, blessing the work of something. Uh, And it's oftentimes, like put in the service of reactionary projects. Uh, But what Ting is doing, I think, is actually splitting a really interesting difference because um, the the sign is basically that Christianity isn't going to go away in this new social order. And by extension, that means that maybe Christianity has something to contribute to it. Like, it doesn't have to exist as just a dissident movement or a protest against the revolutionary society. But this, these might be signs that Christianity, as he ha- as he says, has a, a new opportunity and a new beginning. And there's a real sort of, you know, theological excitement or dynamism that's involved in that kind of claim, even as it draws off of this, you know, pretty interesting, like banal or, or average Christian belief um, or, or Christian form of rhetoric. Okay, so we have this sort of like proclamation or like uh, articulation of providence of, uh, you know, God not extinguishing the flame of Chinese Christianity. Um, and that's interesting. So um, I think like when you start talking about Christianity in China, and especially like in a socialist project, uh, the first thing that people want to uh, usually ask about or talk about is the ways that communists are atheists. And um, Ting has a lot to say about that as well. And about how um, the freedom of religion kind of plays into that. Uh, so uh, Ting says this, Communists being atheists, how can they also advocate for the freedom of religion? There was a time when many of us raised this question, but after many years of observation and learning through experience, we do not feel that it is such a difficult thing to understand. Communists are forthright. They do not cover up their view of religion, but bring it out in the open for all to see. There are parties and politicians in the world who make use of religion for their own ends, while making a big show of their respect for the church. Hmm, this sounds like some people I know. Uh, (laughs) And their assistance to the faith. Because the Communist Party does not wish to make use of any religion, it can forthrightly express its view of religion in no uncertain terms. We are completely free to not accept the Communist Party's religious outlook. But this should not suggest that we all oppose all Communist Party points of view. For example, it would make no sense for us to oppose the Communist Party proposal of the United Front. Okay, so this is this is cool, <laughs> right? Like, um, like if you read uh, uh, the the discourse about China and religion and like the persecution of Christianity is one that never stops and it's even going to this very day, um, and we probably won't really talk about it because that's not the point of this episode. But um, in, in this like discourse uh, about the persecution of Christianity in China and I mean just like in Asia in general. Um, 
you know, you hear like, like, you know, people put scare quotes around like communists and like how they're an atheist government or whatever, which is like really interesting because like, you know, they're trying to play up an antagonism that, uh, you know, a journalist thinks exists um, between atheists and Christians or like a, a state that is uh, not endorsing any religion or something in Christians. And uh, the way Ting lays it out here, though, is good because it demonstrates that like, um, you know, uh atheists but like specifically communists um don't care about what you believe they care about the material reality and um if you don't agree with like their religious outlook like that's fine as long as you don't like reject everything else you know so um it's cool it just shows you that like um the you know a a a scare quote atheist uh government can like not be terrible about religion uh, yeah, I think that's really what's so amazing about Ting to me, too, is that, like, uh, he's able to articulate how Christians can actually have a, a distance from the Communist Party in some ways. You know, like, they're not atheists. Uh, Christians are not atheists, whereas the Communist Party does have a policy of atheism. Um, but at the same time, that distance doesn't mean an absolute distance. It's just a, you know, a difference of opinion on, on this or that issue. And it doesn't preclude them from finding out ways that Christians could actually uniquely contribute to the communist project um, in in ways that, you know, makes sense for Christians to do it, like on their terms. Um, hence the this proposal for a united front, you know, that's com- common among uh, communists. I think that's really neat. Um, in this same article, uh, Ting talks about patriotism in particular as being like one thing that the three self movement has really kind of done well. And I think it's worth talking a little bit more about that because it's a really fascinating and somewhat like jarring thing, I think, for Christians in the West to read, especially where like patriotism and especially like nationalism or whatever are dirty words for good reasons. Um, but Ting has kind of a different perspective on it. I mean, the thing that he is part of is called the three self patriotic movement. So <laughs> that already signals the difference. Um, and I'm just going to pull out two quotes here that are really interesting. So he says this, um, patriotism is a good word. Moses, Daniel, and many other prophets in the Bible were patriotic. In Western countries, however, abuse of this word has caused many righteous people to loathe it, so that as soon as they hear the word patriotism, they think of national chauvinists who bully weak nations, of those diehards who wave banners for reactionary governments crying, this is my country, right or wrong. As for us, we would see first of all what a country has wrought for its broad masses before we make any evaluation of it. And then a little bit later, he goes on to say, this Christianity, the the Christianity that he's advocating, does not take European and American Christianity as the norm, but it is also not anti-foreign. While affirming the universality of Christianity, we understand that Chinese Christianity cannot talk of making contributions to world Christianity unless it rids itself of its colonial nature, ceases to be a replica of foreign Christianity, does not antagonize or dissociate or alienate itself from the cause of the Chinese people, but joins them in that cause, plants its roots in Chinese culture, forms the Chinese self, and becomes a Chinese entity." So I think what's really important about this is like um, nationalism and patriotism, like I said, are, are importantly bad words in in the West. Uh, and it's probably good that they are. Uh, but in the history of socialism and world communism, there is a much more complicated legacy going on there. And Ting helps Christians, I think, understand what is actually being said, like 
in order to decouple from the ways in which actually Western nations have really colonized uh, Chinese forms of Christianity, they need to figure out a way to identify with the kind of communism that's happening there. So, like, uh, he'll use the phrase of, like, what we need is a, a Christianity with Chinese characteristics or something. Um, I think that's a really fascinating thing for Western Christians to wrestle with. Um, it's something that Cornell West actually challenges us to do in that same article we talked about a long time ago, Religion and the Left, where Cornell West said, you know, a lot of Marxists don't understand that, like, religion is a different thing for socialists and communists in uh, colonized or oppressed places. Uh, and so is nationalism. And so are these other kinds of terms that, you know, make some Marxists or some people on the left uh, shudder a little bit. And I mean, exactly what to say about that, I don't know. Uh, but it's it's fascinating that Ting feels the need to really, you know, express this as like, this is an important thing for the Three Self Movement. And it's important that the Three Self Movement has made Chinese Christians more patriotic, has made them identify with the Chinese project uh, more directly. And yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just kind of worth like complicating how we feel about those terms. Yeah, I think it's cool because it kind of explicates like why... Like the the pronouncement of like a you know Christianity with a Chinese characteristic or something explicates like why this is this would be so weird if we went the other direction like if we were in the United States like it it explicates why like this would be so gross <laughs> right <laughs> um, you know because like I can I can imagine like some good intentioned but like uh, weird opinions from evangelicals who would just be like. No, you don't need a Chinese Christianity. We don't need an American Christianity. Sorry, I don't mean to like uh, use a stereotypical voice, but um, I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to, but I did. Um, <laughs> right, like you know, you you, we, you just need the gospel. You don't need any type of like um, specific nationality in front of your Christianity. It's all the same, just because of Jesus, and that's you know the way it goes. It's a, it's a universal reality or, or a universal religion or whatever. And, but, like, I think that uh, demonstrates the ways that, like, you know, like, Christianity being sort of, like, a universal religion to evangelicals in the West is an example of the ways that, like, evangelicalism or Christianity in the West just in general is, like, a thoroughly American religion that has already been, like, um, you know, Christianity is always already Christianity with American characteristics um, in so many ways, so... Um, this is cool because it helps you think through why that's so weird. Yeah, I think it's also an interesting challenge to the sort of post-liberal and like Howard Wassian sort of vibe. Yeah. Um, which is like, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, but it, it's right to challenge American um, identification, like, or identification between Christianity and the United States government or U U.S. patriotism and that sort of thing. Like, that's good. Um, but the principle of opposing all forms of, uh, national identity or identities that go beyond Christianity is really, really problematic, I think. Um, and somewhat, I mean, well, definitely like influenced by virtue of, of being formed in the United States. Whereas like in a place like China, it's actually very important for Christians to figure out how to participate in the national project, uh, to the extent that they can, um, which isn't to like give the you know 
the nation of China or the state of China like a um, free pass to do whatever it wants, and you just kind of always sign on the dotted line. Like that's not what Ting is arguing for either. Um, but it's the idea that you should actually commit yourself to real material projects in the world um, rather than kind of be held back by like abstract principles or something. And yeah, I think it's like it's just a good challenge for for all Christians in the West to think through what Ting actually means by something like patriotism. Yeah, totally. Um, well, speaking of real material projects in the world that aren't communism, here's one. <laughs> um, here's one that Ting has a lot to say about, and we'll return to a handful of times. Um, okay, so Ting goes on to say that, uh, however, there are anti-China organizations abroad which wantonly proclaim an underground evangelism and raise money for their own designs. They claim to establish in China their so-called underground churches. Let it be asked if they indeed have no ulterior motives and are not doing some illegal business, why must they go underground? Some leaders of these organizations live very corrupt lives. Their actions are not worthy of the word evangelism. For the sake of protecting our church from impurity and of safeguarding our national security, we must heighten our vigilance over their use of religion to make money, to launch anti-China propaganda, and to carry out their subversive plots against us. Okay, so um, you've probably never heard of K.H. Ting before, and you've probably never heard of the Three Self Movement, but if you've ever heard of Christianity in China, you've probably heard of house churches or the underground church. I know that, like, even, like, at the, even at my school, like, we... I've heard this narrative a hundred times, if not more. Um, but this is an interesting articulation of like why it's a bad thing, right? Like um, that uh, the underground churches, if they were like just regular churches, like why wouldn't you just go to the regular church? Why would you like have this other secret secret church if not for like some kind of illicit action? And I think that concern, um, I think to people in the West, it sounds paranoid, but I think it's not actually um <laughs> i think like especially in the 80s i mean like you know it's still during the cold war and china is a very scary kind of place or whatever um and uh you know they're they're com they're communists in all senses of the word so um to be um a little bit suspicious toward um underground churches that might be set up by people who don't have uh, China's best interests at heart is not surprising. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and also, like, it just is true that uh, Western powers use Christianity to infiltrate other countries. That's like a real thing that happens. And uh, Western Christians also often understand themselves as like people trying to liberate, you know, the poor oppressed people of other countries from their like socialist governments. Um, so in that sense, like they're responding to a legitimate threat to the state, whether you think that threat is good or bad is kind of a different question. Um, like <laughs> if there was like a movement of house churches in the United States that was determined to create a socialist revolution and they were like doing everything in their power to disseminate like communist propaganda, like you better believe the U S government would be, uh, cracking down on it pretty hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'd at least send like some, uh, some secret, police to the uh, the meetings or whatever for sure you know <laughs> yeah i mean you know like I, I think that's a that's a good example though right like that in the united states if this is like what would happen uh if if there were underground churches of secret communist christians or whatever this is the same thing would happen i think it's um important to point out <laughs> but right, for different right. reasons right like yeah 
Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, maybe we should talk about, um, I mean, there's lots more to be said about this particular essay, which is really amazing and a cool kind of historical artifact. Um, but we should talk also about this really neat article that Ting wrote called Theological Mass Movements in China, uh, which is kind of like a, his way of thinking about the the history and presence of Christianity in China, but also like Christianity sort of more generally or globally and just trying to work out what would it mean to think through Christianity's role as part of like a people's movement and not just a, an abstract set of, of ideas and beliefs or something, even though Ting has a lot of those himself. Um, so lots of really neat things here, uh, but the key is that he's trying to describe how Chinese Christians have, have tried to find their own path in theologically undergirding their own faith. Yeah, so uh, after the revolution in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party assumed that religion would just fade away after the revolution. This is like, every, this is what they always think. This is what communists always think. But like, <laughs> listen, this is what they're wrong about. Sorry, co- sorry, communists. Um, <laughs> that's my, that's my uh, the self-critique there, I guess. Um <laughs> So uh, in in light of religion not just fading away, um, Christians who were committed to the communist project but were still Christians decided to, well, either work with the party to, to determine a framework of like how they can do uh, like a Chinese iteration of Christianity or they joined sort of the reactionaries. Um, and that's the sort of two paths uh, that, T, uh, that Ting lays out in this next essay. Um, he kind of goes out of his way to explain that, like, there is, like, actually some nuance here. It's not just, like, um, Christians either decide to be, like, cool or lame, um, but, like, that they um, either – some of them found, like, the revolutionaries incredibly inspiring and they joined them during the revolution – or some of them like didn't find this to be a good thing at all, and they went a different direction, right? So it's it's not like um, I guess the the point is that like the, the Christians were not like on one side or the other, but they were on both sides, and they had to kind of like figure out how they wanted to work out being caught between these two things. So um, yeah, I don't know. This is how Ting describes it. Um, caught in between, uh, Chinese Christians all over the country started to do theological reflection on their own. It was a mass movement seeking theological reorientation, involving tens of thousands of Christians restudying the Bible in relation to social changes around us. So, like, I don't know, a big revolution happened in society, and they have to, like, figure out where Christians are going to be in it and, like, how they're going to um, still live their lives, right? And it was a massive, like, it was of massive interest to Christians, you know, across the country. Um, and that's why Ting thought it was a good idea to sort of like, uh, formulate something within, uh, the framework of the party. Um, so that like Christians could, um, not just be persecuted or not just fade away, but that they could, um, have a place to participate in the new society they've created. Yeah. I really love the way that Ting describes this. Cause like you said, he, he isn't just saying like, well, some people were right about it and they were revolutionaries and some people were wrong and they were not revolutionaries. Uh, he is looking at the revolutionary crisis as exactly that, like a decision-making point. And he's just trying to explain that, like, this is a, a moment where Christians had to really like actively start thinking through together. And the way that he puts it, it just sounds like, you know, this immensely kind of creative and uh, crazy sort of moment. 
uh, where Christians were were faced with having to reevaluate what they believed about their own faith in light of the the social situation um, that was occurring. And I think what I've admired most just learning about Ting, uh, both in preparation for this episode and in some research I've been doing lately, is he just feels like actually a very measured kind of voice. Like he's clearly chosen a side um, in the revolutionary struggle, no doubt about that. But he doesn't like he's not like uh i don't know annoying about it <laughs> or like he doesn't like he's not like rubbing it in um or you know being super uh unfair about kind of where people are and that sort of thing it's more like he's just like trying to solve a lot of problems and i think that's really fascinating it comes out in how he even describes like the the revolutionary situation yeah totally um i mean uh... There's there like I'm sure like amongst reactionaries there would be like the criticism that like well Ting he's just a communist first and a Christian second or something but I don't know that's not the feeling I get reading him he seems like he takes Christianity even of the people who like didn't join the revolution immediately pretty seriously and yeah I think that's something we can appreciate um so Ting is great right we've talked a lot about how good he is and like just he's fantastic and amazing but listen he's gonna say something bad next. And uh, we should talk about it. It's not bad. It's just like not what I want him to say, but it's fine. (laughs) We'll figure it out. Um, Okay, so this is what he says next. China makes so much of 1949, the year of the people's liberation, that Christians elsewhere have wondered what Chinese Christians uh, since 1949 think of liberation theology. So I read this part. and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And it's just going to be about how good liberation (laughs) theology is, right? Wrong. It's good, but not uh, as good as you think. Um, So Ting goes on to say, we think very highly of liberation theology as a theology permitting and mobilizing Christians in Latin America to join the masses of people around them in their struggle for independence, democracy, and a more humane socioeconomic system. Our reservation is that uh, much as we do see the urgency of taking over political power by the people in the third world from the hands of foreign intruders and despotic rulers, um, we in our situation do not see fit to absolutize liberation and make it the theme or content of Christian theology. Huh. So that's kind of an interesting <laughs> take. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is kind of like, well, it's like, you know, they the struggle is kind of over for them, I guess, is maybe how we could interpret this. And like um, liberation is good. And I think they they respect it, apparently. But um in their situation, they don't think that liberation is the full sort of content of Christianity. And like, I I think that probably liberation theologians think that too, in a certain way that, you know, that there's something more than just like the political liberation of people going on in Christianity. But it's just like an interesting way to articulate that problem. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting because uh, it kind of reads like actually a very conservative critique of liberation theology at the end here, especially um but it comes like you said after this after the struggle is over or or after the the moment of liberation at least has passed whereas liberation theology itself is born out of places and contexts where uh the the liberation the liberative moment has not yet occurred so it's like a completely different sort of way of construing christianity's role i think in the liberation of people and i think it also probably has something to do with the material conditions right like uh in china 
Christians were never a force large enough to really make or break the revolution. Mm -hmm. Whereas in like Brazil and Peru and Nicaragua and, you know, many, many other places, like without Christians, there's no liberation. You have to get the Christians on your side. Um, And in that sense, it also makes sense that like the material conditions would also determine the theological moves that get made. So it's fascinating to kind of see Ting's position is kind of, um, not from a position of like privilege, that's not how I'd want to put it, but from it's it's like the kind of theology that could only emerge, you know, the day after the revolution mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than like the day before. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so he goes on to say some more stuff about liberation theology that's sort of interesting too. Um, he says, uh, we, especially in our post-liberation state of affairs, would hesitate to think that the poor, just because they are poor, are necessarily the bearers of truth. I don't think that liberation theologians think that either, but still. Okay. To make a messiah of the poor just because they are poor and to pit the poor against the rich without the guidance provided by correct theory is neither Marxist or Christian. So again, kind of parsing out that like, I don't know, like uh, like some kind of rub that he sees with like that preferential option for the poor. Um, but then I think the maybe maybe one of the, the ideas that actually makes this make sense to me um, comes right after that and then we'll move on to something else. But... Uh, finishing the thought on liberation theology, Ting says, uh, if much of European theology helps believers live with the reality of world hunger and liberation theology moves them to share in the struggle for overcoming hunger, we in New China are concerning ourselves with the evangelistic task of showing our fellow citizens to whom hunger is no longer the number one problem that we do not live by bread alone. So, um, Love it. yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, and it's not as bad as I thought at first. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just exactly what you're saying, right? Like liberation theology is a, is a theological movement that means something in a specific place. Um, but in China, it doesn't make as much sense, um, because the struggle is not over, but definitely, um, different and, uh, you know, working from a socialist perspective, um, the point isn't necessarily getting people fed because that should already be happening. But it's like, what do you do when you're already fed? Yeah, uh, I'll say one more thing just about his comments about liberation theology and the poor, because I think that's a really interesting thing to zero in on. Um, I feel like I sort of find myself between liberation theology and Ting here because there are like... Oftentimes, liberation theologians will say um, to distance themselves from communism, uh, what they're really responding to is the poor, not class struggle or something like that. Um, and it's the poor who are the the bearers of, of the truth in a real significant way. Um, and Ting is making an interesting point by saying that uh, you shouldn't really see the poor as just, you know, liberators in and of themselves because they're poor without the guidance of, of a certain kind of theory or something like that, if you're a Marxist. Like, that's actually a genuinely interesting point. Um, and it's one that I'm sympathetic to, although I don't think that it, like, dispenses with liberation theology or something like that. Um, but for me, that's always been the appeal of Marxism, is like, well, if, you know, the poor or even the working class were kind of, like, uh, liberators just in and of themselves, well, you know... That like they're not doing it. So how do you explain that difference? It's like the weird version of Marxist theodicy or something. You know why don't the masses revolt? Um, 
And uh, the Marxist way of talking about it is like, well, yeah, like you've got to organize them in, in really particular ways. And I think sometimes liberation theology does sort of sidestep that question. Not always, of course, definitely not always. Lots of liberation theologians who are very good at this. But sometimes it sidesteps that question by saying, by just sort of reverting to an idealized version of the poor as a kind of abstract entity in a way that, you know, maybe could use a little bit of help from people like Ting or something. Yeah, I could see that. But it is overstated. I think that's totally true. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, um, wow, we've done, we've talked about two different Ting articles, um, and you start getting a feel for kind of like what he's about and how he's answering some of these like questions about how Christianity works in a place that is, you know, engaging in a big socialist project. Um, so we want to talk about one more that kind of fleshes out some more of like the concrete ideas and drives home some more ideas about uh, imperialism. Um, so the last article we're going to talk about is called Concerning Theological Education in China. And to me, it's actually the most interesting one because it's like, you know, not just about theological ideas, but is about like how you, how you train people to do Christianity in this type of different environment. Um so, uh, like, like, how do you train people to be a part of the three self movement, right? Like, how do you get people who would just be pastors to, like, actually engage with the bigger ideas is kind of a hard thing. So, uh, like Dean said at the top of the episode, uh, the three self patriotic movement is the, is a type of Christianity that's, um, oriented around the ideas of self-government, self-support and self-propagation. Um, and in this, uh, essay on theological education, uh, Ting spends a lot of the time talking about self-propagation and how important it is to have like a sort of like a, a thoroughly Chinese um, type of Christianity that doesn't rely on external sources. Um, and in doing so, that means that like, you know, Christianity might look a little bit different, but still like they're doing the work of thoughtfully disentangling it from capitalism and, you know, good for them. Um, so Ting says this. We'd not just change old practices and theological education just for the sake of changing, but on the other hand, we'd not regard them as sacred. Self-propagation is the hardest of the three in our three-self-emphasis. We need to take protective measures for the growth of the plant. This is comparable to the adoption by all countries of protective tariff to ensure the prosperity of national industries. We are not so foolish as to not want the benefit of advanced achievements in theological circles abroad but we will certainly not allow thoughts from abroad to harm or control the theological efforts which constitute newborn things in China. And then he says, kind of concluding this thought, the time for the unconditional adoration of whatever is Western is over. So um, you can see this kind of like as a pretty important orienting idea for uh, doing theological education in China that like you you need people to be able to think about religion if Christianity is going to happen there for sure. And they have to do it in a way that's not going to, um, you know, always rely on um, Western practices, Western traditions, Western theological interpretations, and so on. So um, what you get here is um, a really important piece of the puzzle for Chinese Christianity. Yeah, uh, I think it's really interesting, too, that he says self-propagation is the hardest of the three of the three self-emphasis. Because, like, (laughs) just thinking as a person who's been part of churches for most of my life, like, I always think that maybe, like, self-financial support would be the hardest, (laughs) like, logistically. uh, But actually, it's the self-propagation because that's the real ideological challenge, like, changing your entire consciousness 
Um, in fact, he, like he goes on to say, we're departing from the Eurocentrism and U.S. centrism of the past. We're paying due attention to the history of the church in China. The latter should be something else than the missionary history in China, or part of missiology. We need to establish the truth on the basis of the facts when we deal with the question of the relation between the missionary movement and colonialism and imperialism. And I think that's pretty wild, right? That, like, self-propagation basically means trying to really do the hard work of, like, owning up to where Christianity has come along with these violent capitalist practices and also trying to, like, pull apart Christianity from those practices in such a way that it could grow differently. Like, he always uses that these plant metaphors, you know, like, uh, it needs to grow in Chinese soil um, and, and it will grow differently in, in that way. Uh, I think that's just a really, really fascinating um, way of, of posing the problem. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, I, I can't help but just feel like a lot of admiration for just the, the courage that it would take to, like, think that that's a problem that you could even address, and then to go on and, like, establish seminaries and, like, syllabi and even translations of the Bible in such a way that you would be trying to, to do this task communally together. Um, like, he, he talks quite a lot in the, um, in the article about like all the strategies that they're using to to try to uproot these kinds of things uh like the the eurocentrism or u.s centrism of christianity and to plant and cultivate something different and i think that's like a really just impressive feat yeah i think so too and like it, it's such an interesting idea that he frames it in terms of like a missiology um, because I mean that's what propagation is, I guess, right? That's how Christianity often thinks of um, propagation is through the proselytization, through proselytization or uh, like mission work or something, right? But this is a different type of mission work, like um, saying, "No, sorry, you can't. Uh, you and your youth group can't come over here to China and like help <laughs> us build a church or whatever. Um, we're gonna do our own thing." I think it's pretty good, and honestly, it's like yeah. super disappointing that. Uh, that Christianity in the United States, uh, especially, is like so completely beholden to capitalism, or like um, also national chauvinism for sure. That like they couldn't just like see this as an invitation to instead of like going, you know, like w- wanting to have like a mission trip or whatever, <laughs> or like sending like actual missionaries. Um, that they wouldn't just like give the like give their give their money to the three the the three self movement or something right like yeah they would they like they the the problem is or or like the expression of national chauvinism is that like well they can't actually just do this by themselves like that's crazy self-propagation no they need like sort of like the white people that know about christianity to go and tell them about how it actually works so mission committees uh listen up i guess (laughs) yeah exactly um it's also really fascinating too because for him like self-propagation also doesn't mean like just telling one line of christianity right like he emphasizes that there's theological diversity within a chinese form like an indigenously chinese form of christianity um but it has to be something different like it has to be a, a plurality that's not the same as the plurality of like all the different kinds of protestants in you know europe or the united states Mm mm-hmm yeah, so that's exactly what he goes to next. Um, that like, uh, it might seem like oh, um, all of all of Christianity in China is replaced by like um, the Three Self Movement, and also uh, the Council for Christian Churches in China, and um, 
you know, they've made everything uniform. But Ting also works this out and is kind of like um, pretty, pretty quick to recognize um, how that's not actually the case. So he says Chinese Protestantism has already entered its post-denominational stage, uh, i.e. denominational structures are no longer in existence, but in the matter of faith, worship, and spirituality, denominational characteristics have not been done away with. We are, man- we are maintaining our differences, not obliterating them. We are working hard to implement the policy of mutual respect, a policy solemnly announced by the National Committee of the Three Self Movement and the China Christian Council. So, uh, first of all, the the term post-denominational stage is super interesting to me. Um, yeah, same. That you could just, like, not have Methodism or Anglicanism or Presbyterianism, but you just, like, listen, we're all going to still do those things, but just together. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is a pretty interesting idea. So, um, yeah, there's, like, an, there's sort of, like, a rule for diversity going on uh, for Christians in the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. Um, he kind of articulates that rule more explicitly later when he says, uh, we rather need to ask the majority to care for the minority, the leader to care for the subordinate, the teacher to care for the student. Only thus is unity served in the end and truth is reached. So it's this idea that like um, denominations are sort of like a Western formation of thought and like and tradition too. Right. And like, that's true. Like Methodism, Episcopalianism and, you know, all these different denominations are um, Christian formulations from the West. So why not let, um, you know, uh, a Christianity grown in Chinese soil kind of figure out how they want to articulate those differences and they figured it out. They can have a type of diversity while still maintaining like a unified idea of Christianity. Yeah, totally. Um, I should say by way of aside, I won't go super far into this or anything, but like, uh, the story of Catholics is obviously, different and separate from this um there's like a catholic uh an official state catholic organization that for a long time was not recognized really by the vatican in the way that it you know wanted to be or in the way that like many catholics wanted it to be and a lot of that has changed in the last couple years or whatever so like protestantism is probably the thing to underline that's what ting says right chinese protestantism is post-denominational uh, but Christianity, by and large, hasn't, like, <laughs> it's not like uh, they've solved the all the schisms of Christianity in China yet. Uh, right. But who knows? Maybe they will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably um, Yeah, I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> he also deals with a pretty cool, like, common misunderstanding, too, I think, about, like, well, isn't this Christianity just kind of, like, Uh, a tool of marxism being like cynically used to get people on its side or whatever and he addresses that saying contrary to the assumption on the part of some outsiders there's no teaching of marxism and leninism in the curriculum of our theological training centers which is actually crazy to me i was surprised to learn that um in nanjing on the occasion of the 150th anniversary of marx we did have a lecture which clarified what in his teachings we ought rightly to appropriate from and what to disagree with We did not approve of attempts to Marxize Christianity or to Christianize Marxism. We help students see the groundlessness of atheism so that they can do work in apologetics, which is also very funny. Uh, We did not, however, make atheism our number one enemy whom we blame for every evil. And I think that's, like, pretty wild, too, right? This is actually, like, a way more nuanced perspective than I think even I would have assumed, just kind of thinking through all of this, uh, if Ting hadn't just laid it out like that. Um... 
I don't know. It's just like a fascinating way of marking the distance and the affinities between Christianity and Marxism and seeing these as ongoing dialogical projects. Uh, and also, again, like you get a certain uh, whiff of like Ting's kind of conservatism here, too, with respect to his Christianity, I think, um, which is really fascinating. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, when I read this, too, I was also sort of surprised that like they don't read Marx or Lenin or anyone else, you know, in, in these like in their theological training. But I guess like kind of if you think about it within the larger context of society that they probably just read those people other places, you know, like, yeah, that's true. they don't need to read them for theological education because um, they've read them in school or in other other like um, avenues. Which is like kind of different. Uh, is, is actually a really different and weird uh, difference between like the Christianity in China and the Christianity in like the United States or the West, because like in uh, I, I mean you know it's you probably wouldn't read Marx in seminary, but you might read some liberation theolo- theologians that talk about him or something here. So if you want uh, mm-hmm. in theological education in China, you don't have to read Marx, but um, in the United States, <laughs> in a graduate program, at least you probably would. that is actually very funny um well all right so i think we could kind of bring some of these uh insights home uh, as we wrap up here uh what i love about just learning about ting and christianity in china so much is the story is always so much more complicated than it first seems and in this instance especially like the kind of christianity that is being experimented with in china is something that i think has actually a ton to teach uh people in the west both communists and christians like for christians obviously it has a lot to teach us about like the way in which Christianity has been part and parcel with imperialism and colonialism, and also how Christianity could maybe be disentangled from that. Like, that's a pretty encouraging thing to hear, that that might be possible. Um, And for communists, like, it has a lot to teach, of course, about how communists could relate to uh, people of faith and what it would mean to actually fully embrace a kind of freedom of religion in such a way that, like, you saw people of faith as able to uniquely contribute to a society without, like you know, agreeing on every single ideological point. Like, if we've got weird ideas about heaven, no big deal. I think that's a really important lesson as well. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, seeing how this can be worked out um, in uh, a socialist project is good. Um, I hope, if anything, it teaches uh, socialists and communists that, like, religion is just not going to go anywhere and that you can, like, deal with it in ways that are creative and interesting and positive. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. Um, hopefully this episode did not make you stumble too much towards carnality in the flesh uh, with our opening uh, questions about the Kama Sutra. Um, and if it did, I'm real sorry, and I'm going to go get a millstone. But if it didn't and you liked it, then you should give us some money on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, the semester is almost over for Dean and I, and we've had some extremely busy weeks in the past. But uh, up on the horizon is the summer. And that means we have time to do more stuff. So uh, this summer, you can expect probably some more things out of us uh, Patreon-wise. So definitely worth uh, subscribing to us on Patreon and like keeping an eye out for the good content that we are planning on producing. Um, cool. Uh, you should also check out the, uh, the joint retreat between Friendly Fire and uh, Christians for Socialism. Uh, you just Google Friendly Fire and you can definitely find a link to that. It's coming up soon. And so the Catholic you- Worker. Sorry, what? Oh, and Catholic Worker, too, right. Yeah, 
they're part of it. That's dumb. I shouldn't forget them. Um, cool. So you should go to that and meet all of those good people that you probably only know on the internet. Um, yeah, great. And uh, thanks to Amaria uh, Armstrong for uh, our intro music, and thanks to Logical Spoon for our outro music. And uh, I don't know. See you next time. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.